Let's pray together. I ask you, Father, to come and give me the help that I need for these few minutes together with these brothers and sisters. And I ask for them that you would incline their hearts to your word and not to getting gain. I ask that you would open our hearts to see wonderful things out of your word that you would satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad in you all our days. I ask that you would protect us from Satan and his fiery darts, that we would now together lift up a corporate shield of faith by which they are all quenched. Surround us now with your care. Pour out your spirit upon us. I pray that the most proud would be humble. The most lonely would be granted fellowship with you. The most angry would be relieved. The most timid would be made bold as a lion. And those who could scarcely say the words, hallowed be thy name, because they don't pray like that. And it's not the heartbeat of their life. By the end of these days together, would find that prayer irrepressible. Please draw now, now, draw now, draw now, near. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin with a fact, a clear, compelling, unassailable biblical fact. I do believe in facts. I believe that there's reality out there that doesn't have anything to do with whether you believe it's true or not. It's just raw fact. The sun doesn't cease to shine because all kinds of people in their padded cells write darkness on the wall over and over again and say, there is no sun. There are facts in the world. And I want to begin with one and then show you where it comes from in God's word. And it's this. You were created for the glory of God. You exist, every one of you in this room, exist for the glory of God. Everybody was created for the glory of God. Bill Clinton exists for the glory of God. So does Kenneth Starr. So does Boris Yeltsin. Everybody was made by God for God. Colossians 1.15 Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. Everything, including you, were created for Jesus Christ. To magnify him, to exalt him, to show his glory to be what it really is. 
You exist to magnify God. That is, to do it like a telescope, not a microscope. Microscopes show little teeny things to be bigger than they are. Telescopes show huge things that look little to be as big as they are. And that's the way you are created to magnify God. You were created to glorify God. And so was everything you do and everything you are. Sex, what you do with your body was created for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 6.18, shun immorality. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Sex is for Christ. So is pizza and everything you eat or drink. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all finish it. Do everything to the glory of God. Eating, drinking. You exist every minute of your lives for the glory of God. We prayed. Prayer exists in your life for the glory of God. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Prayer was created, prayer was designed so that we might lean on God in Jesus' name and he catches us, he provides for us so that the giver gets the glory. Prayer exists for the glory of God. So does everything else you do. All the deeds of your life are meant for the glory of God. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Not to you, the doer, but to your Father in heaven. Do you know how to live this afternoon so that when people see you, they glorify God? Because that's why you exist. You are on planet Earth so that God will get glory from your life so that you will display his worth when it's all over and we finish the great commission then he comes back Habakkuk 2.14 says the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord the way the waters cover the sea that's the fact now question based on the fact is how do you join God in the purpose of God to display God in your life how do you do this how do you get on board with God in the purpose that he has for your life and that's what I want to talk about now, let me tell you how I'm not going to talk about it. Because there are a lot of different ways you could approach talking about a God-centered life and the glory of God. And I don't want to talk about it one way, which would be a legitimate way. Here's the way I'm not going to talk about it. I could say, you glorify God by gratefully enjoying the health that God gives you in answer to your prayers for healing. Or I could say you glorify God and fulfill your purpose on planet earth by gratefully receiving 
and acknowledging that the wealth you have, you have by virtue of the mercy and grace of God enabling you to work and earn it with the strength that he provides. Or I could say you glorify God by the vindication that you experience over all the people that mistreat you and show how wrong they are. And so you pray and God vindicates you, shows them wrong and you're right. And you give him the glory. I'm not going to talk about that. And there are four reasons why I'm not going to talk about that. Number one, all the nations of the world seek those things. So even when we say, thank you, God, thank you, God, it looks suspiciously to the world like those are just words and we want everything they want just like they want it. Sure, God can be the giver. Who cares who gives it? You got it. And they want it, you want it, so what's the difference? So I'm not going to talk about it. Second reason I'm not going to talk about it is getting these things tends to make us feel at home in the world. You got your money, you got your health, and you got proven right. This is a good place to be. And the Bible says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city which is to come. Anything that starts making you feel more at home on planet Earth is dangerous. Third reason I'm not going to talk about that way of glorifying God. It runs the risk of making a God out of God's gifts. We say thank you, thank you, thank you for health. Thank you, thank you for money. Thank you, thank you for showing me that I was, showing them that I was right. And who can know? Who can know in those moments whether the heart really loves God or loves his gifts? It's dangerous. And the fourth reason I'm not going to talk about it is because you won't finish the Great Commission. You won't finish the Great Commission if that's the way you live to glorify God only. So here's how I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to try to make a case for you that the primary and most effective way to glorify God with your life and fulfill your purpose in existence is by the way you relate to God in suffering. And here I have two ways in mind. I'll take them one at a time after I state them for you. One is, do you retain your joy in God when you're suffering? And the second is, do you pursue your joy in God through suffering? The first is passive. You take what God deals you and you stay happy in him, no matter how bad. And the second is active, in which you see risks in front of you, you see deprivation in front of you, and you say, for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the cities, for the sake of my roommate, for the sake of the campus, for the sake of the lost, I will embrace the suffering, take the risk, hold the deprivation, and go for broke with God. Now, those are two ways 
by which you glorify God in the way you relate to him in suffering. And let me give you four or five reasons why I'm going to talk about it this way. They're almost the flip side of the other four reasons. But the first is different. This world is a mess. And it's a mess because God, in response to sin, has ordained that it be a mess. Which means that the mess of suffering and hardship and calamity and depravity is judgment upon the world and even Christians must experience it, live with it, deal with it, suffer under it. Now let me read you the text where I get that truth. This is Romans 8, 20 to 23. Creation was subjected to futility. Now this is a, a description of the fall, I believe, of the world, both moral world and physical world. God looked down on the sin of Adam and Eve and he broke the world in response to sin. Creation was subjected to futility. Hurricanes, cancer, arthritis, AIDS, broken families, economic disaster, futility. The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. Now, who was that? Not Satan. Satan did not subject the world to futility in hope. Hope is not on Satan's agenda. It's on God's agenda. Therefore, the person being spoken of here is God. God subjected Fort Worth, Minneapolis, to futility in hope. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation is therefore groaning in travail together until now. That's like pregnancy, in travail, that's the word. The groaning of a pregnant woman to bring something wonderful forth. So when you look at a world in futility, when you look at Hurricane Mitch, when you look at famine, think pregnancy. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and travailed together until now. And now here, for all you Christians, is a key word. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan inwardly, awaiting our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. You hear what I hear? Christian, don't think that in your case, the curse is lifted now. It will be lifted. Sins are forgiven now, but 10,000 futilities will bring you to your grave, Christian, and you will groan all the way saying, how long, how long, O oh Lord, until I can be made whole and well and complete. So it's broken and it's a mess. And therefore, if I'm going to talk to 11,000 of you about how you glorify God in that world. I'm going to talk about 
how you respond to suffering and how joy in God relates to suffering. That's my first of five reasons for why I'm going to talk about this. The others are just the flip side of the four I gave you earlier. Number two, if you seek to glorify God by maintaining your joy in suffering and embracing suffering for joy, then this will set you off from the world. This will make you radically different for nobody in the world does this apart from God. Secondly, it tends to loosen you from the world to think this way. To know that the world is shot through with utility, therefore a life devoted to increased comforts and ease is a charade. Fourth, it shows that God is your treasure and not the gifts of God. We've got to find ways, men and women. We have got to find ways so to live that the world looks at us and says they must love God, not God's gifts. How do you do that? Surround yourself with all the gifts that the world wants and then just whisper, thank you, God, you gave it. It's the only difference between me and them is that I know you gave it. Oh. And then hug those gifts and idolize those gifts and live on those gifts. That's not going to do it. The world will not be saved that way. They won't even see God that way. All they see is an echo of their values with God stuck on the end. Big deal. Say thank you all you want. And the last reason is it's the pathway of God-glorifying power that will finish the Great Commission. Oh, God, I want to finish the Great Commission. I want Jesus to come back. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, hasten the day. This is the 14th day of Ramadan. One billion Muslims, including all the mosques here in this city, Fast from sunup to sundown every day starting December 20th in the hopes, in the vain hopes that God will put it in a balance and in the last day it might go down. No assurance, no atonement, no blood, no Christ, no resurrection just works and they're all perishing do you want that to change one billion Muslims the, the Dujang people 394,000 in the northern provinces of China 595 mosques one for every 30 families. No Christians, no missionaries, no testimony. We get nice jobs. What does God want me to do? My prayer for Passion 99 is that there be released out of this place a wave of radical God enjoying, suffering, embracing missionaries that cannot sleep while there's an unreached people group in the world, hardly. So those are my reasons for why I want to give you my message this morning. <laughs> this is the introduction. So here's how you glorify God. Two ways, just two points to this message. And they're very simple. By retaining your joy in God while suffering. That's the first point. That is not being bitter, not being angry, 
not being indicting, not shaking your fist in God's face. And the second one is by pursuing joy through suffering. So let me take the first one and then the second one. Here's the first one. And I'll just go to the scriptures and give you some texts. I have been married as of December 21st, 30 years. And Noelle and I were married in Barnesville, Georgia, little country church. There aren't any schools in Barnesville, Georgia. Well, I take that back. There are. Gordon. My son went there, in fact. All right. No, anybody ever heard of Gordon College? 30 years ago in that little church out in Midway, my father opened the Bible. We asked him to read these verses. And they go like this. And this is what I mean. This is the text on which my marriage is based. And frankly, I believe this is how marriages hold together. It goes like this. this is Habakkuk. That's a book in the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree does not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the fruit of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, Though the flocks be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stall, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You paraphrase that for yourself. What do you want to insert there? Though I fail my test, though my girlfriend leave me, though my parents divorce, though I have cancer in my thyroid, yet will I rejoice in the Lord and joy in the God of my salvation. So I'm asking you, do you know God? And do you love God? Do you see God and do you savor, savor God? Not his gifts so much that when everything is stripped out of your life but God, you don't get angry at God. But you say, yet will I rejoice in God. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Everything can be taken from me. But when everything is taken from me, I still have God. Why then? Why, if that's the way the Bible thinks about suffering, why do most of you get angry at God when things are taken from you? It's because you've been taught so badly and because we're all such sinners and we don't know God and we don't know the world. And I'm pleading, oh God, utterly revolutionize the hearts in this room so that they can say when there is no fruit on the vine, when there's no herd in the stall, when there's no sheep in the flocks, and when there is no olive produce, and when everything around my soul gives way, you then, oh God, are all my hope and stay. I tell you, if that happened in your life, then your campus would see and give glory to God. You see why I approach it this way? The world is not impressed by Christians who have everything and just turn it into gratitude on Sunday. They're just not impressed. 
So what's the point of it all, right? I mean, if we're just on the earth to have everything the world has and then say a thank you on Sunday morning and go and live just like them, enjoy everything they have, what is the point? Be different. Don't be like the world. Get your values revolutionized. Love God. Love God. Delight in God. Enjoy God. Treasure God. Show the worth of God by the way you maintain your joy when everything but God goes. One other text on this one. And it adds one inc incredibly important point. I'm talking about Job. Let me just tell you the story and highlight it. You know what happened. Satan comes to God in heaven. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Righteous, just man. And Satan says, you have surrounded Job with so much wealth and surrounded Job with so much pleasure and so much delight and so many good things. Of course he worships you. Who wouldn't? That's a provocation that God is very concerned about. That's why I'm saying what I'm saying. So God says, all right, you can have him. Just don't touch his body. And Satan goes forth from the presence of the Lord. And here's what we read. The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and slew the servants. And Job hears that in one day. Same day, the sheep and the servants were consumed when the fire of God fell upon them. Third, the Chaldeans formed three companies and came, and all your camels were taken away, and the servants were slain. And then came these words. Your sons, he had ten children, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking in their eldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the house at the four corners, and it fell upon the young people, and they're dead. And I alone escaped to tell you. Now, here's Job and how he responds. I'll read it to you. Job 1.20. Then Job arose, rent his robe, shaved his head, fell upon the ground and worshipped and said the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away blessed 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 be the name of the Lord and the writer so stunned adds and with his lips he did not sin or charge God with wrong come forth Job where are you in America today where are you in America today do you see those three things? Number one, he grieved. Oh, do not hear me say a kind of flippant, trivial, little praise God anyhow kind of faith. No way. He ripped his clothes. He shaved his head. He put ashes on him. He fell on the ground and he wept and he wept and he wept and he wept. It hurts to lose things. I'm not asking you not to cry in your life. Weep your eyes out. Many of you should cry a lot more than you cry. You need to cry. Secondly, he worshipped. What does that mean? It means he savored God. 
he treasured the worth of God because he had lost everything he valued almost on this earth. And he clung to God and treasured God. And the third thing he did was bless God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That means he spoke well of him. He didn't indict God. He didn't put God in the bar. He blessed God. Can you do that at the funeral? I mean the funeral of the young ones. And here's the thing that Job adds to Habakkuk. Job makes crystal clear that his worship toward God and his blessing of God and his treasuring of God is rooted in the sovereignty of God over Satan. Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and in his secondary causality was engaged, no doubt, in bringing these horrible things to pass in Job's life. Though it says a wind of God and a fire of God came. But Job, with the eyes of faith and confidence in the sovereignty of God, knows Satan does not move one inch until the leash is loosed. And therefore he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I've got a question for you. Are you willing, are you able to embrace a great God, greater than Satan, greater than cancer? You see, he did finally get touched in his body, didn't he? Satan goes back to God and says, oh sure, skin for skin. Anybody will keep worshiping you as long as you don't touch their body. So God says, you can have his body. Just don't kill him. And Satan, it says, Satan afflicted his body with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet so that he scraped them with potsherds. His wife came and said, curse God and die. And Job said to her, woman, you speak like one of the foolish women. Shall we receive good at the hand of God and not evil? And the writer of this book, again, feeling like he'd been struck in the stomach, adds the words, and Job did not thus sin with his lips. It is not a sin... In fact, it is the essence of good, sound theology to say Satan is subservient to God and does not move in this world without God's permission and ordination. And on that rock-solid foundation is built a life of unassailable worship and joy that cannot be shaken. So where are the Job's among us? I plead with you, be like Job, because when you glorify God by retaining your joy in God through suffering, the world will look and say, it obviously isn't the oxen. It obviously isn't the camels. It obviously isn't the children, and it obviously isn't the health, and it obviously isn't the wealth. What is it? It's God. And he will be glorified. Now here's my second point. And it's just an extension of the first and the last one. You exist on planet earth to bring glory to God. 
to display his worth, to show that he's a treasure. And not only should you do that by retaining your joy in him through suffering, but by pursuing more joy in him by choosing suffering. Are you going to be like the world? America, even American evangelicalism is shot through with a domesticated, harmless, man-like God. Who's not going to sustain God-centered worship and is not going to get the Great Commission done because the Great Commission is not going to be done without martyrs. But if you've got a God like this, a glorious God, an all-sufficient God, a sovereign God, a loving God, a wise God, an awesome God, then in your worship, dread can be sustained, reverence can be sustained, trembling can be sustained, and in your life, power can be given to embrace suffering for the sake of the nations and for the sake of the campus. Whatever risk is in front of you, whatever deprivation is offered to you for the sake of love, you can take it. Well, let me just read a few instances of this in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. Now here's the situation. Some were thrown in prison. Some were not. Those who were not had the choice of going to visit them or not. Would they go and thus risk the plundering of their property and maybe the loss of their lives? Or would they go underground and stay safe and not identify themselves with these Christians? And here's what happened. Verse 34, you became partners with those so treated for you had compassion on the prisoners and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They ransacked your dorm room. They wrote graffiti all over your walls. They took all your precious possessions. They broke all your CDs, smashed your hi-fi, stole your bicycle, and smashed out the windshield of your car. Sing! Or is this crazy? It is crazy. It's Christianity. It's just crazy Christianity. For you had compassion on the prisoners and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Now here's the key. Since you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you've got a better possession than all those CDs and that hi-fi and all those toys? Do you believe that God is so valuable, so precious, that if you lose everything, not only can you retain your joy, but you can walk right into suffering. Choose it for the cause of love and know that your, your joy is being increased in the reward in heaven. Here's a second one from Hebrews 11:24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing, listen, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Fleeting, fleeting. Oh, yes, there's pleasure in sin, of course. And it may last for 80 years and then zero Minus 10 million pain in hell. So what's the 80 years? Wake up. Oh, that God would give us awakening to the ugliness and the horror of sin with all of its pleasure. So he 
did not choose to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, but what did he do? He considered abuse, suffered for the Christ, greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Same thing. The question is, do you savor God? Do you know God well enough so that you can combat pleasure with pleasure? When you get that email, you didn't ask it to be sent to you, and it says XXXX, 18 only. Click here. How do you fight that? You fight it with reward. You embrace that little teeny weeny bit of denial. You're not getting your head chopped off. Just delete. So, delete. Are you sure you want to delete? Yes. Here's the third one from Hebrews. This is Jesus. Run the race set before you. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Don't try to be better than Jesus. Don't try to be philosophically superior to Jesus Christ, the almighty God. For the joy that was set before him. You got many philosophical ethicists telling you that ruins the morality of the deed. To which I say, baloney. The Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross which means that the greatest act of love that has ever been performed in the history of the world was performed in the pursuit of a superior joy. So who are we to think we should be motivated by anything better than the Lord Jesus Christ himself? So know God, know God, know God so that you can embrace the reward of God and the joy set before you and take the suffering of the cross for the sake of love. And the last one is this, and I'm done. Chapter 13, verse 12. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go forth outside the camp and bear abuse with him. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city which is to come. You see the dynamic here? We don't have a lasting city here. If we had a lasting city here, sure, let's surround ourselves with as many toys. Let's surround ourselves with as many comforts. Let's get as much ease as we can get here and now. This is our city. The Bible says here we have no lasting city. We seek a city which is to come. It's the city of God. And when that city is described in Revelation 21 and 22, the center of the city is the throne and the word at the center of the throne is the dwelling of God will be with men. The dwelling of God is our treasure. The dwelling of God is our reward to know him, to see him, to savor him, to delight in him, to be satisfied in him. There is nothing that compares with knowing God. So when I call you now, as I close, to go outside the camp, I'm not calling you away from joy. I'm not calling you away from joy. Do you hear me? Yes, I've been talking about suffering. But I'm not calling you away from joy. I'm calling you to deeper joy, and I'm calling you to 
extended joy, expanded joy, as others get folded into it through your acts of sacrificial love. When the day comes, and I pray that it happens today or tomorrow or the next day, when the day comes that you are able to say, and say it when you get married, and say it if you never marry, say it when you go into the hospital, and say it when you leave for the mission field, say it when you head home, say it when you get a C instead of a B, say it after the accident. Though the fig tree do not blossom and there be no fruit on the vine, though the produce of the olive fail and there be no food in the fields, though the flocks be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stall, yet will I rejoice in God. I will joy in the God of my salvation, for thou art the strength of my life. You make my feet like the feet of a deer to climb on the high places. When that happens, when you get a heart like that, then your campuses will see the glory of God in your life. Your churches will awaken to God-centered worship. Your families will endure huge hardships and all the suffering that will be required to finish the Great Commission will be embraced. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the lives in this room created for the glory of God. And I plead with you, O oh God, I plead with you, let this word not come in vain. Would you move in power, Lord, upon these young men and women? And would you open their eyes to your glory? Would you awaken their sleeping hearts to the majesty and the magnificence and the all-sufficiency and the all-satisfying glory of who you are and what you are? And would you set them on a course in life where to know you better than they know anything and to love you more than they know, love anything is what their life is all about. And then, Lord, send them outside the camp, I pray.